listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another lovely episode of Speech Bubble. With me today, we have A. Shay Han. A is sort of a indie comic creator around these parts in Toronto. He's best known around here for his Homeless G-Man comic book, but he's got some uh, new projects that he wants to tell us about. One of them is launching on September 7th. So, uh, welcome, eh? How are you? Thanks so much, man. Call me Shay. It's all good. Awesome, awesome. Cool. <laughs> you know, we've been trying to get this happening for a while. So I'm, Seven I'm, months. I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you were finally able to stop by, and this is the perfect uh, lead-up to Fan Expo. We're only a few weeks away. Uh, it's uh, September 1st to the 4th, uh, 2016, if you're, if you're listening before the event, and uh, if you're listening after... Uh, that's just for record keeping. Anyway, <laughs> you missed it. <laughs> yeah, you missed it exactly. So um, I wanted to get you in here because I because I like your work. I like the way um, that you do your stuff, and uh, and I, I thought we would we would talk about like your background and that sort of thing. So um, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I am a native of Kitchener, Ontario. Oh. I grew up there and then. Uh, Left. It's a fantastic place to grow up, don't get me wrong, but I left uh, to go to York University as soon as I could. So, uh, Kitchener is a fantastic place. I, most of my youth was spent in Now and Then Books, owned by the legendary Harry Kramer, God rest his soul. Yeah, didn't he win, like, the first or one of the first Schusters for, like, best for, comic book yep, store? for best comic book retailer, yeah. Uh, Harry stocked everything. Harry had... In in Kitchener Waterloo at the time, you could get the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics. You could get a Distant Soil. You could get Dead World. You could get stuff that was not available on the racks, you know. And he didn't mind selling it to you <laughs> either at age twelve or whatever it was. And I think now, like the retail award for the Schusters is named after him. Yes, it is. Yeah. So so what made him so legendary as a as a customer of his? Well, I was I started going there when I was very young. If if we were downtown, my mom knew if she she was shopping, she could probably pass me off onto Harry, and I could go into the back and like dig the quarter bins for an hour and a half, and he may even forget that I was back there, sort of thing. It was uh, originally now and then books was on the second floor of an old Victorian home, and it was not too much bigger than the room we're in right now. Okay. And it was dusty and musty and Harry would sit there smoking at his his desk, you know, sort of doing the accounts and stuff. And people would just come in and out and you were crammed into this shop that had a tiny little back room. I guess you could say just a lover of comics. You know, every Canadian comic book that was available at the time, he had. You know, Mm -hmm. every indie book that was published in the U.S. too. You could get it at Now and Then Books. And that was the only game between here and going to the Silver Snail in Toronto. You know, there was there was there were no other shops at the time. So wow. to live in Kitchener and to have this access and this resource. And he also gave fair price for buying books back from you because he realized you're just kind of recycling because I'd keep my books when I was young in really good shape. And then when I'd get tired of them, I didn't think of collecting. I just brought them back to Harry. And he gave me a good price if they were in good shape, and I just get right back into buying something else. 
Wow. He so was a, a he was a cool guy. It was a bit of a cycle. How do you make money that way? I don't know. Maybe he just he just has the customer loyalty. So he, he knows, did. He did. He knows you're gonna get more from him. Yeah. So. He was he was a good dude. Cool. Um what was he like as a person? Was he a talker or No. Quiet? Not to me. No. Um I'm sure he had his circle. Yeah. of comic makers you know it was kitchener was interesting too because you know this is the home of dave sim right and uh it's Erebus. and that was always a point of pride for me growing up too that there was someone in this city somewhere my dad taught him in high school oh really yeah yeah that there was you know another comic maker in the city so i think kitchener almost had a cachet to it you know between harry and dave sim i was much too young to get to know harry as a, a man i wasn't even 12 when i started hanging out there uh and i think i was more tolerated than <laughs> someone who was you know an active member of the now and then books group you know wow so does your does your dad have any like did he ever tell you any like dave sim stories the only funny story that sort of came up about dave sim in the past little while was that not this year but last year at niagara falls comic-con james obar was there creator of the crow yeah and he he told me this hilarious story that him and his buddies used to drive up from detroit and they used to cruise the streets of kitchener trying to find dave sim's house Okay. And I'd, I'd, I'd asked him if they'd maybe pulled over and looked in a phone book or anything, to try, but they had no idea where they were going. He talked about they just drive around at night as if like if they asked someone on the street, they'd right. say, oh, Dave Sim. Yeah, he just lives down there, you yeah. know, but I don't think they ever found him either. But he it was interesting talking to him because he had a like kind of a good a smile on his face when he was remembering these trips that they used to make, you know, because if you wanted to get into the indie game. Dave Sim was the best example of that. You know? And that's kind of a long way just to find Dave yeah. Sim. Yeah, but Cerebus was <laughs> it's a good book, you know. Yeah. It was an honor for me to meet uh, Gerhardt this year in March at uh, the Fan Days, you know, the March Toronto Comic Con. Right. He was there this year and he drew all the backgrounds right. for Cerebus. And he was a, a lovely gentleman. I got to talk to him and his wife and that was very exciting for me just to tie all the Cerebus stuff into this story, you know, because I... I knew his work, but he was one of those people that I didn't know what he looked like. Yeah. You know, um, what does he look like? He's a, a lovely looking older gentleman with a beard who wears a bow tie and he's very clean cut. You know, uh, he looks like his drawings. Oh, cool. You know, very, very like precise, precise and put together yeah. and nice. Yeah. Warm architectural forms. Cool. Yeah. I, I always was fascinated to how somebody like that would get into comics because he is one of the only like background specialists mm -hmm. that, that I know. And it's very architectural He's a and like master draftsman, the aesthetic of space and, and that sort of thing that, that is sort of his thing. So I could imagine that maybe he had like a awkward path. Well, looking, yeah, looking at the work, it's like this man must have architectural training of some kind. Right. And this is perhaps a second job or something because if you saw his prints and print work that he had of certain buildings that he drew it was just stunning it was it was like forget all your jumping through the sky deadpools and all that garbage you know you like you look at a gerhard drawing of a cityscape and you're like you're just as a comic book artist you just fall into it you know right mesmerized right. by it awesome so you're hanging out at now and then bugs what are you doing, like, at school? Like, you're going to school, Kitchener, or...? Oh, yeah, all the way uh, to high school. And, and any chance I got, I was, I was drawing, of course, you know. Um, whether it was 
cool or not. You know, I was a comic book reader. I was I was someone who liked to draw, and then I was someone who, you know, if the if the school needed T-shirts, there was a crew of us who were the guys who could draw. You know, if you. <laughs> Every, uh, anyone who's listening who, who was labeled as the guys who could draw knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it's right. like, draw this. You can draw. <laughs> I've never drawn a cow before in my life. Okay. You know, if your school mascot happened to be a cow, which ours wasn't, luckily. But it was just one of those things where you sort of also found similar people. You know, it wasn't necessarily that you all read comic books, but you could all draw. Right. And you kind of made a little bit of a crew around that skill. Was it competitive or no. were you all friends or? Sure, we were all friends. And I was doing things like students council and, you know, we had an art and poster club in high school. We do all the, just like in, in high school movies, all those hand-drawn photos, you know, posters that were in the hallways. We did all of them and we loved doing it, right? We got away with all kinds of stuff, just drawing these crazy posters. Right. What school did you go to in Kitchener? I went to a high school called Grand River Collegiate, which uh, just celebrated its, oh, I don't know, 50th, 150th anniversary. Go yeah. Renegades to anyone who's listening. I wasn't able to attend it, but uh, it was a smaller school. There were about 1,100 people there, so it was very accepting. You were kind of just lumped in. It wasn't like you sort of vanished into the cliques or whatever. It was like everyone, sort of sec first and second generation, third generation, you know, like older brothers and younger brothers and younger sisters all attended the school. So you all ended up getting to know each other and, and hanging out together. And Right. And it's like they already knew you because yeah. they already knew your family. Exactly. Exactly. It was very fun for that. It was a, a good place. A very good place. Awesome. So did you just pick up a pencil when you were very young or were you encouraged to by your family? Or um, My brother is a reader. I love to draw. So if we weren't you know, physically beating the crap of each other as brothers do, I would be over there drawing and Stephen would be over there reading. So my parents had it pretty good 50% of the time, I'd say. <laughs> and it was easy. I love to draw. I love to read comic books and I love to copy images out of comic books and I love to create my own characters. So I, I was into this from the get-go. Nice, nice. You know, drawing dinosaurs and drawing superheroes. It's like, okay, someday I'll be able to do this. <laughs> So you always you always kind of knew. It was always there. Yeah, it was always something I wanted to do, and it, especially doing a creator-owned title or making up my own characters. Because at the time, growing up, I, I remember talking to my dad when I was younger and saying, "I want to go to university to draw comic books," and he said, "Well, for that, you have to go to New York City." <laughs> and when you're you know 13, you're like, "Well, I don't think I'm going to go there <laughs> anytime <laughs> soon," <laughs> but. Uh, it was always in my head that I would someday create comic books for sure. Nice, nice. So your your brother Stephen was he older or younger than you? He's older than I am by two years. He is a certified Silicon Valley genius. Yeah, really a great guy. Yeah, like actually like legit working in San Francisco and like hanging hanging out with like Google and all those. He's people. one of those. Yes, nice. Yeah, he's very cool and he worked very hard at it too. He endured the high school no one wants. You know, because he was the computer geek He's that eventually smart gets yep. really successful and like owns your owns everything yep. or whatever. Awesome. But has remained very humble throughout the whole thing. He's a he's a good dude. Very cool. What did your parents do? My father's a teacher, uh, retired now, of course, for many years, and my mother owned a a gift store in Saint Jacobs with a, a great friend of our family's. They opened it together. And we're very successful with that. They sold lots of candles. 
Oh. <laughs> if you need a scented candle, that was Windrose in St. Jacob's was the place to go. Windrose? That's what it's called? That's what it was called. Nice. Yeah. Well, St. Jacob's. My my girlfriend is from Kitchener. So I, oh, no I've way. become okay. I've become recently very acquainted with Kitchener because we we pretty much drive there most weekends. Yeah. Oktoberfest. I haven't been to Oktoberfest yet. That's what? that that's coming. Come on, man. Uh, for some reason we didn't go. We haven't we haven't gone yet, but but that's definitely coming and I've been told. That that's that I'm eventually gonna do Oktoberfest. You will have because for the listeners, like Kitchener is like a German community. Like that's that's sort of the roots. Formerly known as New Berlin. Until they went to war and then and then the Queen, I think, ordered them to change it. Yeah, or they something. said name it after this my nephew or whatever, Lord Kitchener. Right. Right, exactly. So so because of its German roots, it has like a really good Oktoberfest, really famous. Uh, it also has uh, St. Jacob's Market, which is like this Mennonite market. They have really, really great apple fritters. Apple I, fritters. I have had those. Summer sausage. Oh my goodness, I'm I'm getting weepy just thinking about all this food. <laughs> so yeah. meat so, pies. So when Shay talks about uh, you know St. Jacob's and how his mom had a had a shop there, I guess. Yeah. I mean that's that's like heavy, heavy competition because St. Jacob's is famous for its shops and like wall to wall think like granville island in vancouver on steroids think of like pike place market in uh seattle on steroids but all mennonite but, sort of insp- like wooden right, shells very, like wooden and <laughs> bins like, to put your onions in right right <laughs> like like old school country cottage type of things right that's it right there you know it's it's, it's very interesting so so for your mom to be a successful like candle peddler that, that, that's, <laughs> she, that, she was pimping those candles and that, butterscotch <laughs> lick of sticks and all that yeah i mean they're probably a dime a dozen there like people have probably come and gone it's while, why they while left your, while your mom was it's uh, why they sold the business they're like we've already conquered saint jacob right we've reached the top of the mountain that's amazing <laughs> let's get out of here while the getting's good so what did they do afterwards nothing nothing my parents Retire. have been consistently traveling the world for the past 10 to 15 years, I'd say. That's amazing. Yeah. They oh. did it right. Wow. So, so you're, you're into like drawing and stuff. What kind of comics did you, did you collect? I was, oh, I consider myself lucky, but any, any or person, any era Read that people are buying. Read and give back to Harry. <laughs> yeah, I sold that to Harry. Uh, I was a, a massive, I grew up with John Byrne and George Perez. Okay. I grew up at a time, massive. I think, when the art in comic books was just kaboom right michael golden gene day you know like these guys were my heroes and i bought everything they did the first 12 issues of micronauts are amongst my favorite comic books of all time i and it's it's funny talking to younger buyers and it's like i bought the dark phoenix saga off the rack Mm. (laughs) you know i didn't go to a shop i didn't i bought i walked in i bought a a pack of chips and a coke and X-Men, whatever number, you know, when, when Jean Grey turned into the Dark Phoenix. Did you give that one back? Or did you oh, yeah. Oh, I got oh, rid of all man. of it. I got that. Yeah, the whole thing. Because I just kept wanting to read things, you know. I think I after, and Teen Titans, New Teen Titans came out at that time, the Perez run, which was just an incredible book, uh, Marv Wolfman and, and George Perez. Right. And I was buying, I think then, I think I gave it all up because I really wanted to read the Warlord series. 
If you remember Warlord with his big hat with the wings on it and he lived in a world inside the earth no. and everyone rode around on dying. It was a DC book. Okay. And uh, for some reason I thought that was interesting at the time and I'd had my time with the X-Men or whatever and so I just sold it and bought a ton of wow. So basically comics. you went for the, like you got rid of the memorable comic that everybody wants and went with Warlord yeah. which nobody knows <laughs> right very now. few people care about <laughs> there was one two-part justice league unlimited cartoon where they actually went to scar terrace which was the warlord's realm right. or whatever and i was like oh someone remembered and you know the thing about the dark phoenix saga is like the phoenix saga in general they've never been able to like recapture the magic of the original comic in any medium like the cartoon the x-men cartoon which is like legendary still didn't really get the phoenix saga right the movies certainly haven't got the phoenix saga right they always sort of characterize it as like a thing within jean gray because she has like some abusive past and it's sort of it's sort of a relic of trauma in her in her psyche but it's not that at all. Like it's a celestial it's a force in outer force space and being. That, right? It's a big bird that eats planets. Right. And it's sort of touched by certain members of the Grey slash Summers family, I guess. But I think I think the lasting the impact that comes with the those books, uh, especially the dark the Dark Phoenix saga, was the the death of of Wally West in Crisis on Infinite Earth, the death of Supergirl, etc. It's like these were big deaths. Because right. they didn't happen that often. You know, Marvel and DC didn't kill characters off left, right, and center. You the know? way so that they do now. The way they do now, where you can't even keep track of the body count. I mean, the, the mutants themselves, possibly the most abused characters in the history of Marvel, don't get attached to any of them. Because no guarantee they're coming back. I'd say in, in 2005 to 2010, the amount of beatings that nightcrawler got dying coming back a different nightcrawler showing up one from a different timeline i was like do you guys just hate kurt why well, are you doing this to him and is you know? wolverine still dead he is and now he's back from he's in a different time it's old man logan he's from the old man logan universe right but that's a different that's a different wolverine that's like a extra dimensional yeah wolverine yeah okay but so he's having a good time right right and, <laughs> and x23 is now wolverine is now wolverine which is yeah. i like that i, like I think the, it's i cool. like the female wolverine that, that's cool and then is xavier still dead i don't know i haven't read a current x book in a while i'm hopelessly lost in continuity well, when I, it comes I bring that to up because it's like yeah. his like fifth or sixth death yeah right? i think they killed cyclops right for like a week <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh my god that's the problem with continuity now it's like all over the place i can't i can't really invest that much in in current books published by marvel and dc i don't i don't discredit them i, I don't dislike them i just can't keep up right that's my problem now i follow I, I tend to follow artists anyway so for instance like like an artist like james heron or someone like that it's like i'll just bounce over and buy what they're buying or jim chung who draws a lot of the marvel events it's like well i'll buy that because he's drawing it right the, the sort of the writing is and the consequences of the event or whatever are kind of secondary to me right now i just like the artwork okay no offense writers right right a little yeah. bit 
but exactly. well it's become too much of an annual thing like you know that every summer there's going to be an event now or they be or even more regularly that they take place every six months right or so or they're leading up to something and I, I don't always know if there's a payoff to them i think jonathan hickman is very smart because he actually has plotted these things out for years it's like and then this will come and this will happen and this character will be influenced by this and this right. will determine what happens with the marvel universe whereas Something like the last X-Men event where Hope Summers was introduced as a character who was from another timeline, who was Cable's kid or somebody's kid. I think now she's just in a coma somewhere. They did an entire event around this character and now they're gone. Right, They aren't even active in the universe. Or what happens is like there's like a massive event and it's like it leads to a very small change. Yeah. That that is like a regular thing. Someone got new boots. Yeah, or, or there's a new character... Or, uh, you know, like just a just a very small chain. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Marvel Universe is possibly in the biggest state of upheaval that it's ever been in prior to this. Because, you know, they are making significant changes to long term characters. Right. The the death of Bruce Banner, right. the new Iron Man, the, having X-23 here. I think there's 11 Captain Americas right now. Maybe. It, maybe at 12. least two. Yeah. <laughs> At least two. Having Sam is great. I think Sam Wilson being Cap is great. And those Eminem issues were fantastic that he drew. Right. Gorgeous. But the problem is, is like, they don't, they don't stick with them. Like, they don't make a change and you know, like, you can't believe in it as like a lasting change. I think there, there's some stuff that I hope stays for a while, definitely. Because if they bring Thor or what he's going to be called now, the disgraced Odin son into a series and they keep the Jane Foster Thor for a long time, I think that could really work. I love the, the new Thor, the Aaron and Dodderman series. It's a beautiful book. It's, it's really well done storytelling. And, and that character, I believe, has earned the staying power, you right, know, right. for another five to, Six and I mean Jane Foster has history in <laughs> Thor, so there was a there was a reason. I mean that was someone who looked at the history of the character in the universe that, that supporting characters in the Thor universe and went this this works that we can we can do this, and I I respect that a lot. Right, and if you don't change anything, I mean they just get too you know wrapped up in the in their own status quo and and I appreciate. I mean I like. This is the this is the one thing where where uh, discussions tend to sometimes go in one direction or the other. Where it's like I still like comic books and I like Marvel and I like DC. And when I see people go really negative about them too quickly on, online, it, it it exposes like the fact probably they haven't read what was going on, you know, or they right. read comics fifteen years They're ago. They're reacting and then, to the to the news rama summary. Yeah, yeah, to CBR and all and and all that. And I I. I feel so dis. You know, those people must just feel disappointed because they're missing out on some. The changes are interesting. They aren't bad. You know. Yeah. It's just something to swallow and go. Okay. Well, let's see where this is going. And if it goes in a in a smart place, like the new Thor or something, they're missing out. You know? Right. Exactly. But it's. I mean, I'm finding the older that I get, the harder it is to collect comics on a regular basis because I have other stuff going on. Yep. And I haven't been able to make it to a comic shop. And if you miss a few weeks, it's like you've missed. A decade yeah. of, of comics. I, I am very strategic with my buying now that I go, okay, that's going to be a trade. Right. <laughs> I'll go to the shop. I'll put this on a pull list. I'll look for that in the dollar bins later because I know that's not going anywhere. You know, and you sort of, I, I have to develop a system because I think I only get to a comic shop every four weeks or so that I get to the Beguiling or to Paradise Comics. Right. The two shops that I hit the most. 
Cool. Love you both. Yeah. So, I mean, you, I mean, we're talking a lot about like superheroes and like mainstream comics and stuff, but you're, you're an indie artist. I am an indie artist. You are doing it for yourself, basically. So how did that happen? Like you, you, we sort we're sort of fast forwarding a little bit, but I mean, you're in high school, you're collecting comics or giving them back and trading them in. And then <laughs> it's just going to keep coming back and then, to haunt me. And then, and then <laughs> I was there when Jean Grey died. I don't need a comic book to prove it. <laughs> right, right. And then you, and then you, you, you know that you want to be an artist. Like that's what you want to do. So how did you make that happen? Like in terms of university or college oh, or anything like that? Since, well, like you're saying, like being the guy who could draw. Um, right. So going to. In, in a, I'd say in my family, having a, a university degree above all else is the most important thing. Okay. You can do whatever you want. You can be a, a screw up or whatever, but get a degree. I think for a lot of families, that's the thing. Yeah. I think it's changing. I think mo- modern families are going to be... It's a very different economy now. You know, it's, it's yeah. going gonna, gonna to change, but but that's, that's definitely still a thing. Yeah. So I went and uh, did fine arts at York University, and the benefit to that was making a great group of friends. I okay. don't think I had... I liked my education, but the friends that I made at York are still my friends now. And so that's the most important thing that Why came from that. Why did you choose York? I chose York University because uh, at the time, OCAD wasn't accredited. It was okay. just OCA. You wouldn't get a degree degree from there. Uh, I also chose it because I didn't know anyone who was going there. And I thought this would be nice to... My brother was at U of T at the time. So I was like, well, I'll go to York. To establish yourself yeah, as like an individual. Be me and be, then and yeah. dress exactly like everyone else who was there at the right. same time. Everyone in fishbone shirts. And Are you are you wearing like a Brock Badgers hat? Right I'm now? wearing a Wisconsin Badgers oh, hat. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe they, they that's who they ripped off. Brock is it. another university in St. Catharines and their team are, are the Badgers. So. Isaac Brock wants you. Right, right. They have that poster in my parents basement at, you know, right. family home Isaac Brock pointing directly at you with a big union jack behind him. <laughs> awesome anyway I, I don't know why I brought that up but I, I thought maybe you had a connection to St. Catharines so you're going to York York is like it's its own planet kind of now it's it's it's, it's definitely it's in Toronto but it's it's very isolated from the rest of the city so much so that it it has its own like shoe store and nightclub, York, York Lane, and drugstore, yeah. and and things because they know that like you can't just leave to pick up like essentials because it's not it's in the city but it's not in the city it's in the north part. Well, it's a very of it's, Toronto. it's also uh, the largest sort of commuter university in Toronto. No, mm. you know, so residents there, it's the residents population of York is less than ten percent or right. something like that. And I lived in residence for two years and that's how you sort of made all those bonds that still exist 20 years later because you guys were you were stuck together yeah you know and uh so we had uh the fine art studios at the time was a great building a gorgeous building you had 24-hour access pretty much so if you wanted to go draw and paint all through the night you could go do that in the fine arts building the janitors there were totally cool with you being there that's awesome so when you had your paint area on the third floor, you could bring up some beers. You could smoke up there. You could go hide in the stairwell and smoke a joint if you wanted to or whatever. And they just left you alone. So it was actually a really cool place to make art 
with your buddies because cool. six of you could go up there if you wanted to and say anyone doing anything well let's just go paint and you put on some tunes and hang out and paint so right. the isolation was helpful in some ways but really i mean at that age i mean what do you really know about art and producing art you know right. it's it's called trying and yeah. then getting a degree at the end of it you know right this was also a time this is this is more or less pre-internet as well. I mean, when I was leaving university was the very first sort of computer programming HTML courses were being offered, right? This uh, is a while ago, kids. This yeah. is 20 so this years is like ago. like before like digital coloring and, and, all, and yeah. you know, adjusting your image on computer and yeah. tablet and that kind of thing. Okay. We so were drawing you, by hand. So you know, like the hardcore, like ink stained drawing, drawing skill. Oh, yeah. We were eating paint back then and spinning it on stuff to see what it would look like. Oh, uh, yeah. York was also not the most technical based school for the fine arts. It was more of a conceptual based school, right? Yeah. So there was a lot of the old tampon in a teacup joke, right? Where right. you could kind of make up <laughs> what you were doing as you went along, as long as your reason for doing it made a lot of sense. But the group that I hung out with and the sort of group that formed in the, at that time, we were all figurative painters and drawers. We, oh, okay. we drew people. So we stuck together. So there's a lot of like life drawing. And yeah. Like... We do life drawing any chance we could. And there was a group of, I guess, six of us who were most interested in the human forms and what, happened because of that and what led to sort of my career starting was that uh, the ice gardens were being built at york university which is a giant massive hockey complex with like three olympic sized rinks and six smaller rinks and rinks all over the place right and about 20 of us got picked to do all the murals for it so okay. the year we graduated we were hired by the university to paint all summer long that's awesome and were design. they planning on doing that were they like regardless of how this class turns out we're gonna draft a bunch of them to, to do this. i guess yeah and and bruce parsons who was the the prof who was overseeing it came more or less came first up to all the guys who could and and women who could actually draw right <laughs> like can you draw hockey players <laughs> it's like yes okay you've got a job for the summer that's awesome yeah it was very cool and it was led by uh we were also assisted by two muralists from mexico whose names escaped me this was like I said, a long time ago. So we would hang out and design murals and paint and then go drink tequila and play dominoes at night. That's awesome. Not a bad summer. Yeah. That's really cool. And then like, and they're massive. So yeah, they're huge. You're like on ladders and you're, it's like, Scaffolds. The, it's like the Leonardo da Vinci, you know, sort of thing. Painted about seven times faster. <laughs> right, right. He was right. Like, go, go, go. Right, we have right. the summer. That's it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, d were you, w the finished product, were you proud of it at the end? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> don't, it'd be, I mean, you can always go back and, and want to do things differently, of course, right? Right. So, we're working in large scale uh, in teams and we're working kind of as quickly as possible, too. So, there's a lot of detail work that was probably shortcut. Right. And it's hard to know, like, who did what or whatever oh, yeah. at the end, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But that's an awesome job. So that's the beginning of your career. How did you sustain it once that project was done? Oh, for a long time, I was a, a scenic artist for film and TV and theater. Okay. I, I was painting some of my own work and doing some sort of coffee shop shows or whatever. But th I realized that wasn't going to sustain me. So I had friends who were working in film at the time and got brought on uh, as a, a daily or whatever to paint sets. And then that was my career for the next little while. 
couple of years to seven years, two years to seven years doing film and then going into theater because I like the hours more because we didn't start till 10 o'clock <laughs> as so, opposed to 5 a.m. So what films did you work on? Oh, geez. A bunch of stuff for Sullivan Entertainment was sort of the, the focus of what I did. And it's all painting backgrounds and stuff like that. So all this sort of wind at my back type stuff was which oh, was just shot the Canadian, north yeah, of Toronto. So, so wind at my back. Road to Avonlea. That kind of stuff. Uh, the Piano Man's Daughter. Else? Anne of Green Gables? I did not get to work on Anne. That was before my time. But, okay. And it was it was a, a great learning curve. What happened? What happens in time is you're building a, a set of skills. And doing scenic art enables people to plan better. You become really good at planning things, what you need, how to accomplish things in certain amounts of time, and working independently. I think when you're in art school, you're figuring it out. Right. You're just trying stuff. And then when you work for someone and doing the mural and doing mural work, which I did for a long time after that as well, you're forced to plan it yourself. You're forced to say, I do all of the steps. Here are the steps I need. Here's the here's the materials I need. And you never had to do that before because you're always just kind of scrambling <laughs> to figure out, OK, I've got some white paint and I've got this. OK, what are we going to do with it? And uh, I was able to build my tool shed faster than a lot of people i think but being able to do that i i'm very efficient i can work i can get seven hours of work into four well and comics like it's all about planning yeah you have to break it down into beats because whatever you're gonna use that'll end up on the page has to fit in a finite amount of panels Mm -hmm. on the page right so even if the script is like super, super detailed, like you're not going to be able to fit all those details in. You have to be able to break it down into beats. Yep. Planning is integral to making a comic uh, less busy and and cohesive and readable. And it's stuff. why the, the thumbnailing stage sometimes is, is everyone's favorite part of actually planning a book, you know, because right. there is a lot of energy in, in, in the thumbnails and there's a lot of concise... Uh, putting information in its most concise form. So I, I write by notes. I don't write a script. I write entire pages of notes instead because I'm the one doing it. Right. So I know what I'm thinking. And I know what dialogue needs to fit in. I do the dialogue last, but I have a list of jokes underneath the notes. And once I'm working on notes and thumbnails at the same time, I, after now doing seven books, I've got it down pretty well. Okay. So my focus now is, for my own books, is just going to be on layouts, those same thumbnails and making them look better my i'd say my layouts for the first few books are actually rather pedestrian and not as exciting as they could be so now that i know where i'm going with my books and characters and that i can work on making them look eventually like what i want them to right 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 so like you're doing you were doing like film and like set painting for like theater and that kind of thing what brought you to comics i guess it was two years ago that i realized that I was getting tired of painting. I was doing a lot of commission work and a lot of my own work and shows. And I was actually getting a little freelance or just uh, commissions and doing a a show every year or something. Right. And a lot of commissions, lots of commissions. Were you freelancing full time or did you have a day job? I didn't have a day job. Okay. I haven't had a day job in quite a while. Oh, which is that's cool. Great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that comes from having an audience it comes it comes from knowing a lot of people right right that's your start for your audience so when i stopped doing scenic art uh 
I knew everyone in the theater community. I knew lots of people in the bar community because I was doing rock posters for people every once in a while and stuff. So I had a really large group of people I could draw on for when I finally decided to start doing my own shows of my own paintings, right? Right. It's it's tough. This is a lesson I learned in comics, now doing my own comics, was that I had a, a lot of people to draw on for when I started exhibiting then people were like oh i know shay let's go see his art ah oh, so you I made money him. right away exhibiting. yeah so i was able to make money right away whereas doing comics i was coming into this as a complete unknown property i no one knew me and i didn't know anyone there was no my father was surprised to hear this when i said there's no carryover <laughs> you right. know just because i was doing really well with fine art there was no carryover into into comics I was a completely new guy. Was he like, why, why would you do that? That's your No, no, he was just, he was surprised. He was just surprised because he's like, people in Toronto know you. They know your name, AJ Hunt, as a painter. But they, but the worlds are very, there's very little bleed over, it seems. Absolutely. Unless you're Alex Ross. Yeah. There's no, like painting and comics don't usually go together. Just the cultures aren't that close. Right. You know, it's, it's strange and kind of odd but it's just very true these these worlds are very separate from each other right the main reason i started doing my own books was that my wife is pregnant and we're going to have a baby and i can't work in the studio all the time because Because we'll probably be taking care of the child yeah. yeah so i knew i had about i had seven months or so to make the first three books, Homeless G-Men number one, Battle Rally number one, and Cryptozombic number one. Okay. For the three books I planned. So I figured I would do these three comics, 32 pages, full color, <laughs> each one. And then when my kid was born, it would be time to transition over and start doing conventions. So okay. I could do conventions on the weekend and then be there with my wife to help take care of my child in the first year that she's on maternity leave. Did that plan work out? I can't say that it did 100%. What I can say is is that it made sense at the time and the response to the books has been good, but there are some things I would have done differently for sure. Okay. So now that we're getting into sort of your own books, yes. what made you want to do comics? Like you were a fan, but you had like this good, you know, fine art career and whatever. So what made you go, oh, I think I'm going to do comics because that's almost more risky. It is. It is. Right. It's a, it's a lot. It was, a, it's very silly. It was really stupid. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, because I'd always wanted to. I'd always wanted to do books and I've, I've written, I've had a couple of plays produced and done a lot of smaller festivals and stuff with one act plays. And I've been writing, I've written a couple of books that I've yet to have published. And I knew that I wanted to find, I was going to create my own books anyway. So I had to find the stories that I wanted to tell. Right. And that was the key deciding point was I went, okay, what stories do I want to put into comic book form? And do I have them? If I didn't have the stories to tell, I wouldn't have made the books. And so once I figured out the world that I wanted to create and sort of play in. I was kind of on my way after that. And were you drawing on just your years of experience reading comics to figure out like what the format was and like yeah. Yeah. that oh, kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah. Lots of reading, you know, Scott McCloud and, and uh, Framed Ink book. Um, there's a, there are a few, Brian Hitch's book of drawing comics. There's a bunch of books that I went through how to draw comics the Marvel way which I think I took out of the Kitchener Public Library everybody 400 times everybody has read oh, yeah. how to draw comics the Marvel way 
Everybody has. Don't and, and there used to be there used to be like those Klutz travel books where they would like come with they were like you take them in the car for like long road trips. Okay. And they'd come with like pens. And they have like and, word bubbles already stuff. in them. And, and word stuff. bubbles in them. And like they would have like overlay paper and tracing paper for all like the different stuff. And it would basically like walk you through how to draw like superheroes and stuff with all the equipment already in or bound into the book or whatever. I remember being a snob about stuff like that because I was like, I can already draw right. Iron Man because I read How to Draw Comics. Right, right, right. So, so I started with this with this Klutz book, and they were like, you always have to make your your superhero eight heads tall. It's not a superhero unless it's eight heads tall. God, you need the heads measurement. And yeah, uh, yeah and like yeah, and like perspective was a big lesson. And uh, foreshortening and that kind of stuff. Big fist. Right. Small head. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and why that's a thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I remember that. I was never, I was never really good. I was, I was good at, like, copying stuff, but I could never really get the proportions or anything right as a kid. Where it starts, though. I mean, I was yeah. copying John Byrne. I figured that was a pretty good place to start. Right. <laughs> and then my brother got better at drawing than me. Uh-oh. And so I was like, I'm never going to be as good as he is. So I'll just I'll just write. Writing is writing, And that's what brothers do, better. right? You specialize. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like, so, if he's doing that, I'm going to do this. We get equal <laughs> amounts of attention, but doing different things. Right, right? exactly. And we, we made zines together and stuff. You, you keep coming back to the fact that you had these stories that you wanted to tell in your head. I'm specifically, well, particularly interested in where the homeless G-Man thing came from. Because that's what I knew you from, right. even before I knew who you were or, or who we met, like how we met officially, I would see you at conventions doing the homeless G and I'm like, I'd be like all the time. I'd be like homeless G man. What the heck is this? It sells itself. It's right. the title that sells itself. That's what's so crazy about it. Right? right. It has, it's one of those titles that just has a ring to it, that it makes people smile or it makes people interested yeah. or they look down. It was, and it was a total fluke. I mean, like I knew you were doing homeless G man before I knew who you were. Mm-hmm. Like, like I knew about the homeless G man. So I never really worked. under, yeah, I still haven't quite figured that out. I mean, I did, I was, they did a thing on me on space TV and stuff when I did a show of drawings at my friend's tattoo parlor and that, but homeless G men is just a name that has succeeded as a name. It's, okay. It sticks in people's heads. It's one of those things more. So I thought it would be cryptozombic that would, cause that has such a kind of flashy name to it or something, but no, it's homeless G men. And I'll be, I'll be behind my table at a con and someone will walk by and they'll see it. And I watch them mouth it homeless g-men and then they <laughs> smile and then so i just say come on over here and look at the book would you you know right 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 and it's it really does it does sell itself as a as a comic i have my wife to thank for that she's the one who came up with the title just okay. she didn't hear me correctly and said homeless g-men i'm like perfect <laughs> i just wrote it down <laughs> and yep. you were like yes that's that was it. it it was that easy wow so like you had these three books that you were doing and I want you to walk me through how you came up with the concepts for them. So let's start with Homeless G-Men because that's the most exciting. Homeless G-Men was going to be, is the cornerstone book. Okay. Yeah, it definitely. It was, it's, it's, it's your A-team setup, right? And I wanted to build a very funny, a funny book. I wanted the, I wanted the Homeless G-Men to be a book that a lapsed comic reader would enjoy. Someone who read comics 15 years ago or so and gave 
stopped reading them. Right. I wanted a book that would bring people back to comics, you know, that it's not overly dark, it's not overly serious, but the story is still solid. There is a definite plot to it that right. develops and that they could recognize these characters quickly because they all look very different from each other and uh, kind of go for a ride. I wanted a bit of a Mad Magazine feel to it or a Jack Davis feel or a Silver Age sort of feel to the book. And uh, it came very quickly. And the success of that book is, is it's funny. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny book. It's got action in it and people enjoy it for okay. sure. So that's amazing. And you're thinking about it and not everybody who comes in here when I ask them to describe their book describes it as a marketing strategy in the way that you have. So I'm very intrigued that you're thinking about it from the get-go as like how you're going to sell the book and what how what audience is going to be attracted to it. I think, and, I think that's just what happened. I mean, that's what right. I recognized over right. time as I was selling. When I first did uh, the March Toronto Comic Con, I walked in there, my kid was three weeks old. I was going on two hours sleep. I'd just gotten my books. I had one issues, one, two, one, one, one of each book, right? right? And maybe two prints. And I was exhausted. And I just stood behind this table and like tried to get people to come over. There was no real advanced marketing, but it was, it was so funny to, that's, but that was where I got to see that a book like G-Men was actually a bit of a success. I didn't sell a ton of copies, but people sort of approached, like they met the book halfway, you know, right. which was really cool. So it wasn't until after doing a few cons that I started to see actually who wanted to read this book, okay. you know, and who was interested in the stories themselves. So that was, uh, like I said earlier, like it, I had no real planning going into it, but I've learned a lot about planning since. And so you can tailor your sales pitch and your marketing and everything towards right. the audience that, you know, you're succeeding with. Right. So when was your first convention? Like, when did you first try to sell? Two, I guess two years ago would be the Toronto Comic-Con, the one in March. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Because... I thought you were around a way longer than you actually were. Yeah, I, I, I tend of... to fit in really well. Yeah. And I like to get to know people and I like to talk to people. I'm very social. So it's really easy for me to, for people to go, have you been here the whole time? Right. <laughs> it's like, no, I just got here, man. No, that's crazy. Because, because art is sales, art is sales and paperwork. And that's what people, when you're, I'm 44, I've learned that now. Right. I know what it takes to put a project together. I know what I have to look at the numbers. I know what my costs are going to be. I know what supplies I'm going to need. It's not, I'm not going into it without a full plan. You know, I at least know how much something's going to cost to do it or how many hours I would need to do it. So I feel that it's easier for me to get acclimatized to how a market is done because I've been selling art on my own for a long, right. a I very mean, long time. That's right? got to come from your fine arts background and exhibiting your own work and that kind of thing. It comes from my own fine arts background. Right. It doesn't come from anything I was taught. It's what you learn but over time. Like yeah. those gallery shows yeah. and stuff that you've done. I mean, most people that I get in here who are like younger, like around my age, when I ask them like to tell me about the book, they tell me about the plot of the book. They tell me about like the project itself 
And you, fascinatingly, went right into like the sales pitch for the book and what you were thinking strategically. Yeah, you need that. You need to elevate her. You know, you need that pitch. You need all that stuff. Right. And you learn it quick at comic conventions because no one is there to buy your comic book, man. No. No one wants your comic book. No. That's the, the most insane thing. And that's my learning curve being so new to conventions for two years. And you learn it damn quick is that no one there wants a comic no. that you made. No. There are so few people who are interested in buying a comic book at a comic convention that uh, I'm sure a lot of people bail and get bitter really quickly because of that realization. But there is a way to, to make that work for yourself. And that's just by being a better salesman than the people around you. Right. And knowing what you have at your table that the other guy doesn't have at his table and how people are moving through the space. Yeah, you watch them. You change You change how your table's organized every day. You change. You alter things. And you become friends with everyone who's around you at conventions. Right? Right. There's no competition at these things. If, if anyone feels that there is, I, I feel bad for them. You it, know, you can yeah. build... This is a, a, a great community of people from the craft people to the print people to the comic book making people. You mm-hmm. know, these are all... You're all in it together. So you may as well be a great network and support system for each other right 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 for sure that's awesome i mean so what was the original title of homeless g-men before your wife it didn't have one it didn't have one the original idea was that it was a story of a cop who was very much like swinnerton hale and he became friends with like a street performer sort of person who'd be be like a batman and robin almost set up okay and i realized that wasn't quite enough i did to tell the story that i wanted to tell i needed a couple of more active players than that and uh being human was was coming on inner space and uh i said to my wife do you want to watch being human and she walked in and she said homeless g-men oh that's what it took yeah i see it was an absolute pleasure meeting sam witwer and getting to tell him (laughs) the story and give him a copy of homeless g-men i was like your show is kind of responsible for this happening what did he say was he was he really like, flattered so yeah yeah he was no he thought it was really funny because i had him and the inside the first issue is the, is that story yeah. right so he was reading it and then he got to that part and he just smiled you know like hey that's cool okay because at first he didn't know what i was talking about of course because he hadn't seen the book right yeah so that was nice i, I really like that. that's awesome it's like a full circle moment totally totally when uh Kevin Hickey was he puts together the Humber cons. Right. Uh, had told me he was going to be there as a celebrity guest. I was like, that's fantastic. I have a story for him. Nice. You know, I have a reason to talk to him as opposed to going, I really like your show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a vampire. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So that's the homeless human. I mean, I'm going to ask the obvious question. Forgive me. Uh, why are they homeless? Like, what? what's the homelessness? They were charged with protecting... Uh, the son of a senator okay that was their job as the g-man and the, the senators the homeless g-man has backstory and that's what it'll be coming in the next okay. year or so um that they were all part of a, a military unit together okay most of them sort were. of like the a-team like the a-team it's exactly uh-huh. it's exactly like the a-team <laughs> but with way more monsters than really? the a-team had and, and and no cabbage cannon unfortunately the a-team uh-huh locked that one up um so they're charged with protecting this the son of the sen of a senator and this the child is kidnapped disappears etc and the evidence points to them doing it is very a team and so when the series picks up they're very close to actually putting together all the pieces as to who framed them right so it's not like this is going to be a long drawn out 
15 issues of getting clues here and there, they're, they're almost there when right. you start reading the story. Right. So uh, by issue three, you get a flashback as to actually what, ha- what right. happened at that time. So maybe you get to see something that they didn't, or you figure out what character has actually been there the whole time or who, who is this secret member of the team or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did, cause I didn't want the story to be about solving the crime. I wanted it to be about them solving the crime quickly and moving on. I see. Yeah. I see. I see. And to the next mission. Yeah. But as a result of the fact that they are under suspicion for kidnapping this senator's son or whatever, they are on the run and therefore have no home. They are homeless. And they are homeless. Yeah. Ah. I spend a lot of time to having to explain to people <laughs> that yes, they're homeless. And yes, that is actually going to be an aspect of the story that comes into play. Right. Just not yet because someone had said they don't look homeless. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, it's kind of a, a metaphor. That's you know? right. Like, you're, you're getting, <laughs> you're getting like the same sociopolitical things that people think about homeless people. sometimes. Yeah. About your comic. But there are homeless people in the story. This is just coming. You're it's being, coming later. Your comic is being discriminated against. Very much so. The way homeless people are, are totally. get discriminated against. It's still sometimes. a really good book, people. Don't worry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and don't read too much into the comic itself. Because you will be disappointed. <laughs> there is no social message. And, and it's not homelessness in the sense that, like, these are homeless people who have become G-men. Rather, it's G-men who have become become homeless. homeless. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Homeless, as in like people without a country, as yeah, opposed yeah. to people yeah, yeah. without a house. Yeah, they're not you know? people. <laughs> and like maybe that'll disappoint you when you open the book. Mm-hmm. They're not hanging out in like cardboard boxes solving no. crimes. No. Yeah. They do have. You have yet to go to their base. They do have a base, and it is a, a disappointment of a base for sure. Right. It is very. They are homeless in that sense. The, right. The materials that they're forced to work with are are rather lame. Right. But it's not like a dumpster hotel or something. No, it's no. close. It's very close. Okay. Okay. Cool. So the next book I want you to talk about is the is the crypto zomb- zombie one that yep. you, that you do. And um, one thing to understand is that it's a shared world. So all three books do take place in the same world. It's so good. You wanted to build a universe. Why? It's way more fun. Okay. Because I like my characters. Right. I like them a lot. And I think I want them to talk to each other. And right. I want them to hang out. So there is history that crosses over with some of the characters that you'll find out right. later on. I'm very, I'm very protective of it as a sort of creator own property too. You know, it's like I, I will work for other people, but I will always come back to these books because I have written these backstories for them. And like this guy does know that guy, and that guy was married to that guy's sister. You know, like did there's you all have sorts to of like that. make a Bible? Like, did you? Did I you have a make light like Bible a that evolves. Thing? Yeah. Okay. That evolves as uh, as I get ideas too, as I okay. get ideas for stories that won't be coming our way for another two to three years or so, you know. But there's always these uh, little light bulbs that go off where you go, "That's great, yes." Wow. Let's work that into it at some point. At some point, okay, cool. So tell me about the whole crypto zombie thing. Crypto zombic is a story that takes place on an island. Uh, where science, here's my pitch right there, where science has gone terribly wrong because if it goes right, your comic book is pretty much over. Um, and it's it's my really where my love of monsters and gore and John Carpenter and Predator and all, all come together. Right, right. And so 
uh, it's a top secret reef research facility that has been absolutely devastated by some incident that happened three years ago. And the only surviving, the only guy to get off the island has been asked to come back to do a tour of it, ostensibly to film a documentary about what has happened, what happened on this island three years ago. Okay. So it's, it's him. like a Dr. Zhivago sort of, yeah. that sort of thing. It's him and a young cameraman who are there just to scout locations. Right. Because he wants to do a little tour to say like, okay, well, this is where this began. This is where this happened, et cetera, et cetera. And the island is completely overrun with uh, all kinds of cryptozoological creatures and zombies uh, and other interested parties who want to exploit the island. Wow. And so they it's all like Jurassic sort of, Park. But. It's Jurassic Park with zombies and zombie dinosaurs and uh, Altered Beast, if you remember that video game oh, at yeah. all. It's it's kind of a whole mishmash of those things that I just want to draw. It's like, what do I want to draw? I can put it on this island. Yeah, like you have like full freedom in terms of like yeah. creature drawings and stuff like that. And there's, there is actually a story to it. It probably, it might not look like it because they keep running into different monsters and different sort of villains and everything, but they're, they are headed towards a destination in the story itself, which is, it's been, it's not, it's not that it's been a challenge. It's just that when do I get to spring this? And when do I get to let this information right. out? And is our hero really a hero at all? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Could he possibly be the villain of the entire story? Or, you know, or at least like an unreliable narrator, a right very now. unreliable narrator. I wouldn't trust him. Okay interesting so this is like the savage land if the savage land was like like a pulp style it's like type thing. the savage land meets jurassic park is pretty good right. yeah i always say it's like predator meets the thing right or the, or something like like those great mashups right. you know, where uh nature and science sort of collide nice. in the worst possible way for the people involved in the story awesome. it's also the kind of book where you get to fill up with like that guy runs around with a gun and there's a whole bunch of guys with guns and then something just comes out of the jungle and eats all of them. Yeah. It's one of those, one of those books. Like Congo or like Heart of Darkness. <laughs> Is that Michael Crichton who did right. Congo? Of- <laughs> <laughs> with the apes with the plates on their hands? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that one. Exactly. Not a, not a classic, Mr. Crichton. No, no. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> but they made a movie out of it. And it was kind of freaky if you were young, if you were young enough. Yeah. Right? Well, because they taught the apes to kill, to right. protect the temple. Right. Yeah, and they kept in the book. They just kept finding all these people with their heads smashed in <laughs> everywhere they went. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I read that when I was twelve or ten or something. Yeah. I I like that kind of thing, like the the hot zone, which is all about like Ebola, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, like those sorts of weird island types types of stuff. It was is. It has to take place on an island. It just has to be on it. You know, it's one of those stories right. like Skull Island with Kong or Monster Island with Godzilla. Like, you just need an island right, somewhere. Right. Probably in the South Pacific somewhere where you're just like, yeah, it's just an island and it's full of monsters. Yeah. No one ever has a problem with that. Right. Because you know, no one will dispute it. Because South Pacific, like, I think you go into it thinking there are, like, random islands there anyway. So a whole bunch of even them. possible. Yeah. So, like, because... 
you know, so many islands. How many, like, we don't know all the islands. And I think anyone with an imagination sort of wants that kind of playground right. too. Anyone who's, who's seen a Godzilla movie or that wants that idea that there's a place where monsters live mm-hmm. together in some a Kaiju max, you know, or something like that, that right. all live on some Island together in a certain situation, you know, and this is just cryptozombic is just giving those monsters kind of a soul and giving it, um, our hero or anti-hero Dr. Gabriel Running Bird is kind of a guy who understands the island. He was always sort of an outcast, but he, when he, when the research base that they're on was set up there, he sort of got it, you know, I he see. sort of got how the ecology of the, of the place worked and wanted to be a bigger part of it. Dangerously so. Dent. So it's very like Heart of Darkness. Yeah. It's very like, like I, I'm picturing like the Marlon Brando of, of, uh, that becomes He's a lot slimmer. part of it. <laughs> like, like My hair Kurtz. is a lot slimmer and has more hair okay. at the time. He didn't, uh, yeah, he, he is someone that you'll get to know sort of the problem with writing a book like this is I don't, I'm not a big fan of exposition. If, if my guys are going to be talking, they're probably going to be running at the same right. time and something's going to be trying to step on them. So I don't give out a lot of information in my books. I think I give out enough. I don't, I don't read talky talky comics. Right. Talking head comics. Yeah. Like, I yeah. can't do it. I, I put them down. I walk away. Right. I feel that the artist is often being wasted. Um, since I, I have to say I do read, or as I said earlier, I do read comic books for the art. Right. Stories are, are very compelling, but I, I'm an art first kind of guy. Right. And if I see a lot of word balloons, I don't care. I just don't care. And if I get a script from someone to draw, I try to persuade them to remove as many words as possible. (laughs) But you really need to. You don't want to work with like very like writerly writers. Yeah. Like you and Alan Moore wouldn't wouldn't work. Probably wouldn't wouldn't work together. I mean, I wouldn't say no. (laughs) Alan, I don't know. The speech is a little long. Can we trim this down by about two pages? Right, right. Because it's, I think there's really a balance that has to be respected in the vision. It's a visual medium. Right. And you have to be able to place your word bubbles accordingly, of course. But it is a visual medium first. And I think people can see that on the page. They can decide for themselves looking through, flipping. I flip through comics. I flip through a lot of books and I don't buy them. Right. It's not a criticism. It's just I flip and I flip. And if I see something, there's like, okay, there's two pages of action. Okay. There's two pages where something actually happens. And then the rest of the time... Like the last sort of run of X-Men over the past couple of years where it's just Cyclops and Magneto talking about morality or whatever for eight or nine pages at a time. And and Chris Bacalo is drawing this book, who's one of the most dynamic artists and does the most interesting page layouts. And I'm not getting a payoff from looking at his layouts because there's all these words in the way I, I turn off. Which, which begs the question, like, as an artist, as a person who's visual first... When you do buy comics, the one time a month, the once every four weeks that you go, what are you buying? Because I feel like you're very discerning and people will be like, you know. Ooh. Oh, I buy, I buy Rumble first and foremost. Okay. I buy Jason, uh, James Heron and that. I love Rumble. Rumble is a fantastic book. My favorite book of the past six years was uh, The Sixth Gun, Colin Bunn and Brian Hurt and Bill, okay. Bill Crabtree, which just ended at its 51st issue or the end of the story. That that was the comic that got me back into reading comics, for sure. I love that book uh, more than anything. They balance storytelling and image. Fantastic. Right. And I also, I bounce a lot. Like, I just got the 
Oh God, I'm actually going to look at my Amazon orders here because I have to. So I get all the names right for people. I uh, just got the Fear and Loathing book that, uh, is it Troy Little? Recently published? I'm not yeah. Kidding. Yeah, it, which is fantastic. I mean, I had my Hunter S. Thompson phase a long time ago, but it's a great tune style. Like the book just looks fantastic. Um, Trail of Steel, 1441 AD, was a fantastic book by the author who did... Uh, a fantastic book on comic making called Framed Ink. Okay. Which is a must own for anyone who likes to make comic books or want to make comic books. It's it really gives that idea of how to make a panel look cinematic. Okay. Which is really hard to come by. I mean, we always tend to draw storytelling with comfort. We always tend to do a medium shot really quick and then a just a real close up. And he actually sort of gives a reason why you should frame things certain ways or how much background does a panel need what angle will carry the eye better uh marcos mateo mestre is his name and i can't recommend that book more okay cool that's an awesome recommendation because i think there needs to be like the next understanding comics Mm -hmm. and i think like because it's always like the the resources that are named in the comic book industry are sort of all the same still so it's good to have something new that like and it's it's one of those things that haven't really picked up it's a book that sort of fell into my lap because of following sort of other comic book writers and artists on social media it was just just popped up a few times i was like i haven't heard of this one right and people like someone like jeff mccomsey or someone who does foobar saying like oh you know you gotta have this book this is a book to buy right it's like okay i don't need any more recommendation than that coming from you as a a comic maker who i respect right sold (laughs) awesome the third thing that you're doing, it's going to be a webcomic in September? Uh, yeah, Rumble Watch starts on September 7th. Okay. And Rumble Watch is the history of the homeless G-Men before they became the homeless G-Men. So it's... So you're doing the back story as like a separate comic? Yeah. It's going to be online uh, once a week, every Wednesday. The uh, story will come up and it's kind of going to be like a action digest where there's three different stories. Okay. And you will follow them week to week. There's the rumble watch story, which is sort of the GI Joe group. There's a, a man called enemy who is separate from the rumble watch, but as always, these worlds tend to collide. He is, he's an anti-hero character uh, who's a lot of fun to draw because he's, he's kind of like, a, he's like a really smart Lobo I guess right. you could say, who works for the government. He works for the, the same army that the Rumble Watch is a part of, but he's actually a villain. Right. So he's the guy who does the real dirty work. So Rumble Watch is the unit of the homeless yeah. G-Men? They were, they were called the Rumble Watch. The Rumble and they're Watch. sort of made up of different characters from, similar to G.I. Joe. There's guys it is from very all similar of, to G.I. Joe. They're all over the world, but they're like really, a lot of them are seem quite ineffective or ridiculous, but... R- like the puffin who's one of the characters who's sort of the canadian one of the canadian characters in it who is actually just a a bipedal puffin who has a hockey stick and people love this character every time i draw this sketch him or put him up or put up a panel that he's in people are like who is that it's like that's the puffin he's my version of i guess like puck from alpha flight or a beast or someone. He just, he's a ridiculous looking character that people just glommed onto for some reason. That's you know? awesome. And, and an actual like Canadian animal that people don't go to immediately. Yeah, people don't care about. Cause the puffins are 
on you know they're on like pei and yeah over an island and they just sit on a rock there are puffins i don't even really know what they do <laughs> right so look like beautiful and pretty <laughs> yeah and end up in people's hearts yeah so this time and stuff i made a, a badass puffin nice. who's a part of a, a rough and tumble Who hits army people with unit a hockey, with he a hockey, hockey stick. stick yeah and it was just a joke that i drew it in there i drew him holding a hockey stick and i went you know what we can it's comics he can keep that right, cool it doesn't hurt and then the third story that'll be in it is is all good simeon and the monkey mob and they're the uh the dirty dozen the real like they're all they're all criminals they are actually surviving during the war that the rumble watcher in they are surviving in between the the front lines and the battlefield as their own unit so they are stealing things from everybody and all that just to get by and that's been very entertaining to write because they're just thieves and robbers and that with hearts of gold, let's say. Wow. Is this the first time that you're doing a webcomic? Yeah. You haven't launched it yet, but no. how are you finding it in terms of in terms of planning and that kind of thing? I had started these three stories several months ago. I'd already started drawing them because I was going to publish them together as one physical issue right? as an annual sort of thing. But then I decided, you know what, let's just put this online for free. And so the Roma Watch is sort of like an anthology yeah. in the background universe yeah. of of the homeless dream man. Yeah. So I just wanted to do Rumble Watch and put that online so people could read it for free. And then hopefully that would also bring interest to the current books, to Homeless G-Man and Cryptozombic and Battle Rally, that people are like, you know, I like this. Mm-hmm. I kind of like this guy's aesthetic. I like what he's into. I'll go check out his physical comics. Oh, cool. What is Battle Rally? Battle Rally is the third book that I do. And it is, uh, let's say, Death Race meets Shogun Warriors. So it's a vehicle combat sport that eventually leads to giant robot fights. We haven't gotten there yet in the series, but that will be coming soon. Wow. And it follows a team of racers who are independent. They don't have any corporate sponsorship in the beginning of the series. And then eventually, due to, well, you got to read the book to find out. They end up getting a corporate sponsor and sort of how that changes them as a team, how the the sport itself changes over time. And as they try to navigate this sort of world of corporate interference and stuff like that, where once they were very much used to just being their own, their own boss. And like Death Race, like it's broadcast to everyone. Yeah. And like, it's one of those like murder for entertainment sort of it was never yeah the sport is never it's more like nascar in the sense that it was never intended people never intended to die if they did die it would be an accident Uh, it would be people aren't not like i'm killing you in the context of a road race no in the context of a road race no uh what was sylvester stallone's character Uh. machine gun something Uh. yeah no it's not like that it's it starts off clean and then it gets dirty as we go on in Uh, the story i see and it's it's funny battle rally is the book of the three that i sell the fewest issues of but it's the one that i get the most feedback about because people just love the g-men and i see people at cons and they say i just love the g-men you know i love that talking killer whale i love that blah 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 Uh but battle rally is the one that the story and the characters that people are really actually respond to they actually i never expect to get an email or anything about battle rally because it doesn't sell a lot i don't sell a lot of copies of it but i inevitably i do because i'm always touched by it because people are generally interested in the book when they give it a chance which is very cool because i did it as a risk i did the third book when i when i got the idea of planning out how i wanted to do a shared universe rumble watch was going to be the third book okay but instead i went you know what 
I want to try this vehicle combat idea. I want to see if I can do anything with this. I need practice drawing vehicles. I need to do a few yeah, things hard, in landscape. Right? They are. And, and a lot of them, I just, they're made up. They're models that I have that, right. I, that I copy. Um, so I went for it. I was like, you know what? This is worth a try. And I was so kind of charmed myself when I was creating the characters and writing the book that I went, you know what? This is worth publishing because if, if I hadn't thought that the end product was good, I would not have printed it. I could have put it online for free or whatever, but right. I liked it enough that I was like, yeah, let's put the print money into this. Cool. So when you talk about like, you know, the degree of success that you're having, mm-hmm. what is that? Like, like, That's like a really good when question. you say, like, I'm selling a lot of home streaming, I'm not selling so much battle rally. Like, what is success in your mind? Cause it's still indie comics. Yeah. You're still a person that like is not a household name. So what is what does success mean? When I you? look at sort of what I've done in in the past two years since the books have come out, and when I do those sort of, you do have to do your own accounting. You do have to look at your sales. You do, right. have to, you know, and it's like, okay, I have X amount of copies of G Men left. I have X amount of copies of Crypto. X amount of copies of Battle. Um, I think you have to really start by measuring your success very small when it comes to comics. The first thing, the first success you ever had is publishing your own comic book, right? Just getting one out there. That is a, a huge success. And I think a lot of people forget that. That a lot of people try to make a comic book and they have a concept and they have an idea, but they don't finish it. Right. You know, they don't even get to the Kickstarter stage or they don't even get to the hiring an artist stage because it's tough. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah. Especially when you do the whole thing yourself. And most people have like jobs. And you have jobs. And things that are taking up their time. I like I said earlier, I work for four hours a night. You know, prior to doing this, prior to my daughter being born, I worked on the books for seven to ten hours a day if I wanted to. I could because I wanted to finish them (laughs) before she was born. I had a certain amount of time uh deadline. Um so I also think that your your sales are very important. That anyone actually buys your book in the first place is important. You can't go into this expecting to sell a hundred books off the your first convention, right? Right. Because you don't know what you're doing, man. You're not. <laughs> you don't know. Eastman and Laird. No one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And no one knew who they were yeah, at yeah. one time, yeah. right? They, they they got turned down by everyone. Right. Everybody. No one wanted the Ninja Turtles. Nobody. Yeah. So you have to look at success in these very small increments. Like I am incredibly proud of what I've accomplished with making books for sure. And being able to, uh, I've gotten a story published in an ID in, by IDW. You know, there are certain things that I've achieved. I got into TCAF after two years. To me, that is huge. Maybe to other people, they don't think that's a significant goal but to me it was it I was means like, you're oh, on the run yeah at it, least locally exactly i was like i'm getting into tcaf in two years that was a goal that was written down right and luckily because <laughs> i wouldn't be saying it was a goal that was written down i succeeded i'd be saying i'm still waiting <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. get into tcaf <laughs> exactly. so i think you have to take everything as a success you can't look at it solely financially or you'll just cry right you can't look at the hours that you put into it because it's it's a passion project right first and foremost if it translates into something larger after that more power to you 
Is it important to have some other sources of income yes. or something? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Get as much other sources of income as you possibly can. Okay. Because, you know, I like doing, I do other things. I design t-shirts for people. I make my own t-shirts. I also, I've done tons of album designs. I, I still do commissioned paintings when I can. I don't really have as much time for that now. Um DVD cover art for stuff, you know, it, it just comes. If you're, if you have a larger network of people, you will get work. Work right. will show up. Your name is out there. Right. So it's fine to take on other jobs if they help pay for what you're doing. Of course. Right. I don't think you always have to be so single-minded that you're like, I'm not going to take a day, I'm get a day job. For yeah. my art. Don't. Half the business is paperwork. No one wants to hear it, but it's true. Right. Right. It's planning and it's paperwork and it's looking at your bank account and it's, you know, that's why something like, like Kickstarters are so important now to right. indie books. There wouldn't there'd be hardly any indie books, really. There were 130 comics kickstarted last month. Right. You know, that's not because, a small like, amount. It's a source of funding yeah. that you don't have to like like scramble for <laughs> or like fight for or bleed for because it's either successful or it's not yeah people are either donating or they're not i think you i i don't want to do one just yet myself because i think you really should go into it prepared right well prepared with with an audience in place that will actually start to support you from the get-go right uh, and something some, maybe done already. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't do it unless my book was 50% finished. Right, right. Because I've seen people want to put up a 200-page graphic novel, and they haven't even started it yet. Yeah. And they're asking me for, like, seven grand or something. Right, right. And then you're no. waiting for your reward forever. Yeah, it's not worth it. And I'm not going to invest my money in someone who does that because they've obviously not put their mind to it properly you right know? do it's a not, 32 page comic it's not donate to the thing that doesn't exist yet so that i know that you actually want it to happen and knowing living an artist's life is also like well as, as we just said take on other jobs you're like well that book's just going to keep getting pushed farther and farther away from right. you right so exactly all your kickstarter people are like they may forget you or even worse they will remember you Right, as and then, the person, and then who, you'll never be able to do another Kickstarter exactly. campaign again. As the person who let them down, which right. is not—I'm not coming into this business to let people down. Right, exactly. Know. Wow. I hope I don't let you down, Aaron. No, like you have not let me down, and, and that's success. That's a gr that's a great thing about this interview. Is like I've learned so much from you more than I more than I thought that I would, and and that's the great thing about this podcast is like. Everyone comes in here and they all have their own angle and they all have their own story. They are all artists. They all do what they do, but they all attack it in different ways. And that's why I created this podcast is to sort of go deep and figure out how people are doing what they're doing. And I think you're, like you're absolutely right, too, because with Speech Bubble, that's that's what stands out is that People say comic book artist, and that says so little about the person that you're talking to, right. actually, because we all have incredibly different working methods, incredibly different backgrounds, different things we believe in, et cetera. We are not all the same person. Right. We, we especially come at work very differently when I look at, from looking at Jamal Campbell's work to Mike Ruth's work to my work, you know, it's different there are no through lines through anything that we're doing except that we are making comic books because we have 
we have our style. And I hope that like people hear these conversations and they hear like the thought that goes into the stuff that you are doing and they want to come and check it out. So Definitely. where can people check out your books? Oh my goodness. I'm going to be available in flesh and blood at many different locations over the next little while. I will be doing the Cambridge Comic Arts Festival on Saturday, August 27th. I will be at Fan Expo. You have got to see my display at Fan Expo, people. You will be blown away. It is two giant comic book towers built like G.I. Joe bases covered in action figures. Wow. You will... You're going to want to see it. You're going to take pictures of it and maybe buy a comic book at the same time. Uh, right after that, I will be up at Doug Simpson's place. I will be at Paradise Comics on September 17th on the Saturday, drawing all day and selling books. Then the end of the month is London Comic Con, of course. Wow. So I'll be in London for the first time. I haven't been there before. Then off to... <laughs> Uh, Hamilton Comic Con on October 1st and 2nd and then at the end of the month of October I will be at the Mississauga Comic Arts Expo. That's which, a legit tour. Yeah. You're the first guest ever to rattle off like tour dates. Oh man. Oh, seriously. You gotta lump them all in it's at awesome. the same time. It's awesome. It's when it's happening, right? It's exactly. Like, this is now? Okay, I'm doing it. This I, is now? Okay, I'm doing it. You can't say you know, I have said no to doing certain conventions and that or signing or just have missed the dates for them. But it's like these are all very doable and they're going to be fun. The, doing the Cambridge Comic Arts show, doing the Mississauga show, th those are going to be great because there's just going to be a lot of comic makers. The Mississauga show is comic makers only. Right. That Jason Liu is putting together. I'm really hyped for that. Right. That's so cool. Jason Liu is putting together a comic convention. Yeah. I remember when Jason Liu was just like an artist and now he has sort of the power and cachet to put together his own comic. They did. It was done last year as well. And I think he was a part of it, but then this year he's taken over a lot of the planning. Nice. I, I believe Aaron Ong was involved with it last year. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Cool, man. Oh, so wait, and what? one more thing. What? Pints and pages two will be November 12th in the back room of the Cameron house. Pints and pages. We started last year. It is a get together of comic book artists and we will be in the back room of the Cameron house drawing all day. We'll all have our books to sell and you can come by, have a beer or a coffee or whatever, and just hang out with us. And tell them you heard about it on Speech Bubble because yes. November 12th is my birthday. Oh my goodness. Aaron so Brolerman. tell them that uh, you're here because you it's Aaron's birthday. He may be stopping and, by and during the day by. so I can buy him a drink for yeah, his birthday. I'm perfect. It's a lot of fun. It's the chance that you don't usually get to actually have the social time with a comic book artist crew that you want. Right. When I started it so... We, comic book artists would get a chance to talk to each other first and foremost and you hang out. It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I organized the first one last year. We did it over two days. Uh, the second day was the Santa Claus parade. So <laughs> that didn't work out okay. very well, but the, the Saturday was great and everyone wanted to do again, again. So I said, well, let's do it just on one day. And it's just invite a whole bunch of people. And I had advertising out at all the comic book stores, gave them out at conventions. So like if you just want to swing by, and chat, talk to a com ask them questions about making comics. Cool. Ask them because sometimes conventions are just too busy for this stuff, right? Right. There's like literal lines. You are being and pushed the along. Yeah. Line where you know it's a designed line that you have to be in. And totally. So I decided and go. So the next person. I decided it would make a lot of sense just to have some breathing room. So in this time, it's about a, I don't know. It starts at like three o'clock till seven o'clock at night. It's just a 
chilled out time that you can relax, have a drink and talk to a few comic makers about what they do. Take some more time to look at their books and ask them questions as they're doing, you know, as they're making art in front of you. And I think it's a little bit of a unique idea, but I think it's also a necessary idea because even comic makers, we don't get to talk to each other as often as we'd like. Right. Right. Like conventions are sort of the, the time. Yeah. If Well, prior to a convention opening yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the, a convention, convention yeah. that's it. You don't see them the rest of the time yeah. unless they're standing right behind you. So where can people find you online? Oh, uh, Aishe Han, the homeless G-men on Facebook is where I'm constantly posting uh, artwork and updates and appearances and all that if you still use facebook uh on instagram i am mad crafty shay and i post there quite often lots of sketches uh on twitter it's mad craft shop which is really just me linking my instagram account to twitter as i rarely tweet right uh, i'm no good at it i would just rather read gail simone and other people who are much better Be- at tweeting yeah, than i am yeah okay cool 150 characters can be a challenge for yeah sure. so I mean, thank you. Thank you for coming in. And uh, Shay, it's been a pleasure uh, to the audience. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, make sure to uh, tell your friends and subscribe to Speech Bubble. Subscribe to Speech Bubble. Tell your friends about uh, what Shay is doing. Uh, try to see him at one of his many appearances. And uh, I want uh, I want to thank you for coming in. And uh, we'll see you again next time. My most uh, speech bubble. My most sincere th- sincere thanks, man. I mean, you're you're currently wounded. You came in hurt for yeah. this. You could have canceled. You could have canceled. I could have. But you're a we, trooper, man. We'd already we'd already put it off for seven months. So I I wanted to make this happen and. I have to put out the episodes every month, right? So I can't just stop. If I stop now, all the momentum is lost. Very true. Right. You're a hero, man. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, How I Got Hurt is a story for another time. So I will see you again next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time.